Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's St. Patrick's Day. The rich history and culture of Ireland has City Lights twinkling emerald green today. We'll hear some marvelous Irish poetry and listen back to a conversation about time spent in Ireland by the heroic abolitionist Frederick Douglass, an inspiring story of his kinship with the great Irish liberator Daniel O'Connell. First, you need not be Irish to celebrate St. Patrick's Day or love the Irish. What began as a religious observance centuries ago has evolved into festivities all over the world, with parades, music, dancing, people dressed in green and wearing shamrocks. The Honorable Quiva Necrore is Consul General of Ireland for the Southeast United States, based here in Atlanta. She joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's so good to be with you and with your loyal listeners. I'm new to Atlanta, so your welcome is not only to the show, but to Atlanta. But I think your, your show is a really great way to get to know the city. So thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, welcome to Atlanta as well. As you say, you're new to our city. How long have you been here? By my count, it's a bare five or six weeks at this stage. It's always good to arrive and face into St. Patrick's Day because that's a <laughs> for, for celebration. And it's, it's a day that opens a lot of doors for Ireland and the U.S. It's our secret weapon in the U.S., really. It's a day when everybody loves to be Irish, as you said. And it's, it's a really inclusive day. You don't have to be Irish, precisely as you said, Lois, to celebrate on, on St. Patrick's Day. Indeed. With just five or six weeks here, do you have any impressions already? Well, I love it. I've come from New York City, like many people that I speak to who, who make the migration from the, the frozen north. <laughs> I feel like I have cheated winter. I really am impressed by the city. It's so the energy and the dynamism are so palpable. The diversity, the youth of the population. It's very clear to me since arriving that this is a city that's really booming um, and a city with a lot of potential. And it's a city with a very warm welcome for newcomers. I read that you come from the human rights and gender equality team with Ireland's permanent mission at the UN. How will your background in human rights inform your work here in Atlanta and the southeastern U.S.? That's a really interesting question. I think the short answer to that is that human rights informs really everything in Irish foreign policy. It's at the heart and always has been of our foreign policy. So whether that's at the UN or whether that's in a city like Atlanta, um, engaging on bilateral matters, engaging on trade and, and building political contacts. So I think no matter where we are in the world, it's important to take a human rights lens to what we're doing. Absolutely. I know that the consulate provides many services, including commerce, travel, and partnerships between our governments. 
Throughout the past several years on City Lights, we've especially enjoyed discovering and sharing information about events surrounding the culture of Ireland, past and current. So we're eager to hear about your plans. I think it's really going to be a St. Patrick's Day to remember because for the last two years, we haven't been able to celebrate it in person. So we can see that there's huge excitement and, and pent up demand and people just cannot wait to get out and about and to feel that joy. And I think another lovely thing about St. Patrick's Day is it co coincides with the beginning of spring. So you have that sense of longer days and, and brighter weather. Um, culturally in Atlanta, a lot of the St. Patrick's Day events are concentrated around the weekend preceding St. Patrick's Day. So the parade, for instance, took place on, on the 12th. Um, but on St. Patrick's Day itself, the 17th, the Fernbank Museum will show an IMAX giant screen movie called Ireland, narrated by the great Liam Neeson. I know people here are, are Liam Neeson fans. Oh, yes. And that's a film that takes viewers on a tour of Ireland's landscapes, our culture, and tickets are free and they're available on the Fernbank website. And then on the 23rd, a very well-known traditional Irish band called Lunasa will be live in concert in, in Roswell. And of course, Savannah. I know you have listeners in Savannah as well, Lois, so I can't neglect to mention the Savannah St. Patrick's Day Parade the Savannah St. Patrick's Day Parade is one of the biggest in the world. In fact, it's the second largest in the US. Um, it's an enormous parade of great colour and excitement. Um, I'll be celebrating St. Patrick's Day in Savannah with Ireland's Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who is paying a three-stop visit to, to Georgia for the St. Patrick's Day period to call to Rome, to Atlanta and to Savannah. So we've a, a very full programme with her. Is her position the equivalent of the Attorney General of the US? No, I think it, it's Attorney General plus, I would say. She's a member of the cabinet. She's also an elected representative in her local constituency. And she's responsible for the administration of justice, yes, but also things like the police force, inward migration, refugee, the granting of refugee status prisons and so on, the security of the state. So it's a very, very broad brief, very, very important brief. So we're delighted to have her. And she will speak. Will there be lectures? She will have a number of speaking engagements. We've some breakfasts with the Irish community. We've, we have a reception in Pond City Market, in fact. She'll also speak in, in Savannah. So I, I hope your listeners will have a chance to hear from her. Wonderful. Going back to that new documentary, Ireland, the actor Liam Neeson as narrator states, we Irish are redefining our heritage. Why is it important to redefine? Yes, you're absolutely right. Something like heritage, it's not frozen in time. And it's important, I think, to always reflect on heritage in a way that that takes account of, of a variety of experiences, a variety of voices, um, and really interrogates what it means to be Irish. So here in the consulate, and in fact, across our network in the US, including at our embassy in Washington, we've been really cognizant to kind of, to speak to the plurality of the Irish experience, the diversity of the Irish experience. For instance, we've been working very closely with an organization called African American Irish Diaspora Network, an amazing organization which is digging into those, the roots of African Americans with Irish heritage, a little known story, but a story that deserves to be highlighted. So that's part of what we're doing, Lois. We're really trying to express that diversity and inclusivity around being Irish and what it means today. Your Twice removed predecessor Shane Stevens took special pride in the cultural connections, and he brought to our attention the Frederick Douglass in Ireland chapter in history. And in fact, Emory University now holds those archives. And that African American. Irish connection is fascinating. There are so many 
important aspects of each culture that bind the two. Absolutely. The Frederick Douglass story is incredible. And I think it's interesting to see at, at different times how campaigns for justice and civil rights on both sides of the Atlantic came together. And I think you saw that again in the 1960s with the echoes across the Atlantic of the work, for instance, of Martin Luther King Jr., of John Lewis. And then, on, for instance, in Northern Ireland, you had John Hume and you had a very organic conversation that took place between those two movements. And I think it's something that continues to influence the civil rights movement and the, the movement for justice on the island of Ireland today. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Irish Consul General Quiva Necrur. Going back again to the film, the documentary will be gorgeous on that IMAX widescreen at Fernbank as we see expansive views of the island. Another quote, nowhere else does every brush with nature feel so intense, so full of life. I think with the Irish diaspora in the United States, we tend to think of the urban experience of Irish people. Do you feel it's important to elevate the rural life and history of the island? Do you think that's gotten short shrift? I'm so interested that you say that, Lois, because I, I sometimes feel that the urban experience in Ireland can be overlooked in stories of the diaspora. But on your bigger question about whether the rural story has gotten short shrift, I think it's really important in any reflection on Ireland to have rural life at the heart of it, because, you know, our roots are fundamentally in, in the countryside and small rural communities. Most Irish people, even today, are only a couple of generations from, from the land. And that, you know, that would be my own case. My grandfather would have been raised on a farm, for instance. So I agree with you that the rurality and the small communities, it's really at the heart of how we interact with each other as, as Irish people. And I think it explains a lot of how we are and the importance that we place on community, the importance we place on storytelling. And I think it all comes back to that to that rural space. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely correct. And I should have clarified, I think... Our impression of Irish culture here in the U.S. is informed more by the urban experience of Irish emigres, the urban experience in the United States. But your point is very well taken about not being very far removed from the land. I mean, it was the famine, essentially, that brought about that great diaspora. Now, if we could get to the lighter side of things, I have a Welsh friend, and I also spoke with someone from BBC Wales who takes great pride in the fact that St. Patrick was Welsh and kidnapped by the Irish. Where do you weigh in on that? Oh, yes, that's right. That's very true. That is the tale of St. Patrick, that he was kidnapped by a nasty gentleman called Neil Neenilach and brought to Ireland. But, you know, fortunately, the Welsh and the Irish, the grudges these days, they really centre on rugby more than anything else. And we've, we've, long, we've long since buried the hatchet when it comes to, to who owns St. Patrick. Uh, but on the rugby pitch, the rivalry is as lively as ever. Well, Keeping to the lighthearted side, why do you pinch someone on St. Patrick's Day? Or why do some people pinch on St. Patrick's Day? Well, I'm really showing my uh, the fact that I'm new to Irish America in a way by confessing that I have never heard of that. Ah. <laughs> that is a St. Patrick's Day tradition. I must It must be a firmly an, an Irish American tradition because it's not something I, I'm familiar with. I think it was connected to, well, first of all, going back to a time when people felt a little less 
constrained by boundaries. And I think it may have had to do with someone not wearing green. Okay. I'll hold myself back. I won't pinch anybody on on St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) So I see that there will be a greening of Atlanta City Hall. What does that entail? That's right. That's right. Around the world, monuments turn green for St. Patrick's Day. And I think this is a tradition that really started in the U.S. with the greening of rivers, you know, Chicago and so on. But now it's a global phenomenon and the pyramids of Giza, you know, it's incredible, the monuments that light up in green for St. Patrick's Day. But this year, I have to say, Lois, we're approaching the greening in a somewhat more somber mood because back home in Ireland, we're all desperately saddened and outraged by what's happening in Ukraine. And I think our instinct is to reach out and and to express our solidarity with the people of Ukraine and to really throw open our arms to them. So right now we're, we're actually reflecting on, on whether instead of greening, we might turn those monuments blue and yellow in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. So watch this space. I'm incredibly grateful to City Hall for agreeing to, to green that beautiful building again this year. But um, like I say, we're just reflecting on whether it might be nice instead to show that support to Ukraine. It seems there's one more event that is very important, and it's the St. Baldrick's Charity Head Shave. What can you tell us about that? That's right. St. Baldrick's is a fantastic charity set up by a group of of Irish guys here locally. St. Baldrick's, it's a pun on Bald and St. Patrick's, and they have raised millions of dollars for childhood cancer. So I can think of no better cause. And there will be a charity head shave taking place in Thomas O'Reilly's public house in Sandy Springs on the 19th of March in aid of St. Baldrick's. So please do come along and show your support for this really great cause. Irish Consul General Cuivany Crewor. You can find more information about the Consulate General of Ireland and Atlanta's St. Patrick's Day events on our website, wabe.org. In my conversation with Quiveny Crewor, we briefly discussed the Irish connection to the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass. In a moment, we'll hear the story behind the inspirational history of Douglas and Dublin's Daniel O'Connell. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz. It's great to have you along. In the 1840s, an escaped slave, the heroic abolitionist Frederick Douglass, forged an unlikely kinship with the great Irish liberator Daniel O'Connell. In 2018, The Honorable Shane Stevens was Irish Consul General for the Southeast United States. He visited WABE with Emory Professor Pella McDaniels to share this little-known history. Professor McDaniels, who had been the curator of the African-American collections at Emory's Rose Library, sadly passed away in early 2020. Here, 
Shane Stevens explains why Douglas was in Ireland and how he met O'Connell. Way back in 1845, when Frederick Douglass had recently freed himself from slavery and when he was only 27 years old, he, he went to Dublin uh, to, to put some distance between himself and those people who wanted to return him to, to, to bondage, to, to, to slavery. He also went there to publish his autobiography in Dublin. It was the first international uh, publishing of his autobiography. And also, perhaps most um, profoundly, he was there to set up a new front in his uh, war against slavery in America. Okay. Pelham, this is such an intriguing chapter in our history as well as Irish history, and yet not many know about it. No, and I, th- I think, again, thinking about Douglas and his development uh, post his uh, self-emancipation and then the publishing of uh, the narrative, that his experiences abroad, especially in Ireland, knowing and, and actually seeing the um, the ways in which uh, the Irish people were treated and the, the poverty, the, the famine, uh, the potato famine is, is now beginning, I believe, in Ireland at this time. So his, I think it, it both challenges how he sees himself in the world, but he also has another way in which to, to view oppression in, as a, in a global kind of context. And if you could tell us a bit more about what he saw in Ireland when he arrived. Well, Shane can speak to most of this, I believe, but what I was reading uh, most recently was he saw people who were, you know, they were starving, and he saw people, uh, you know, on the streets emaciated, and um, just the kind of destruction you would imagine when people are impoverished. Yes, and he was also, um, in Ireland, he he also was very conscious of the work that uh, Daniel O'Connell had done there to emancipate Catholics in Ireland from uh, the penal laws, these kind of uh, oppressive laws that discriminated against Catholics in Ireland for many centuries. So he saw the, um, he had been aware for a long time of the political work um, that Daniel O'Connell had done to transform Ireland. So we saw the results of that in Ireland and then met Daniel O'Connell himself, which I think was a very, uh, a very important moment for himself because he actually went on to describe himself as the Black O'Connell. Mm. Do we know any more of their relationship other than that single meeting? I think the, the, their relationship was based around their ages at the time in many ways. Freddie Douglas was 27. Daniel O'Connell was at the end of his career in his 70s. Uh-huh. He was a kind of a, a mentor figure to to the young Douglas at, at, at this time. And... Um, Daniel O'Connell was a figure who, who concentrated on emancipating his own people, as, as we've said, but always had a wider perspective. He was, at that time, one of the most important um, abolitionists on, on either side of the, of the Atlantic. He was a major figure in the abolitionist movement, and he was also someone who had fought for the rights of, of uh, Jews in the, in the UK. He was a person with a, a wide perspective uh, at all times. He was a true Republican in, in the true meaning of that sense. And I think um, that was an inspiration to Douglas. So what we're seeing here is a deep humanity that yes. transcended race, and backgrounds yes. and something they shared. Yeah, and I think, again, I think Douglas having the opportunity to see how the system of oppression works beyond just the idea of race, you know, the, the factor that he was introduced to through slavery, but seeing the Irish being persecuted, being treated in a similar fashion as the African-American uh, at the time, the enslaved African was, uh, was important because he was looking at a system that um, was deeply embedded in, in our global politics. And, I, and again, someone who is still learning, someone who is still developing his, uh, you know, his ability as a statesman is learning firsthand from Daniel O'Connell and, and others in Ireland, um, you know, how do you uh, fight back against these oppressive forces? And um, neither of you has mentioned that um, the oppressive force in Ireland, of course, was the English. Was England. Uh, Daniel O'Connell was himself a uh, uh, a nationalist, a nationalist of that time. He was someone who was fighting for um, 
the repeal of the Act of Union. He wanted a parliament to exist in Ireland. So he was fighting for Irish rights on, on many fronts. And again, later in, in, in his life, um, Daniel O'Connell himself became a supporter of Home Rule for Ireland, which was a limited form of, of independence for our country. Another way in which uh, O'Connell uh, influenced um, uh, Douglas uh, was that as a practitioner, Douglas is one of the greatest speakers that Ireland has ever known. And again, Douglas became an absolutely outstanding and inspiring speaker, a powerful speaker. I can only imagine the power of his oratory. And I wish that there had been tape recorders around in the 1840s through the 1890s. Um, But from your readings... Might you compare his style to that of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King? I think in some ways, um, his the timbre of his voice, of course, we don't know. Um, but we do know that he was delivering to tens of thousands of people across the, you know, the, the country, but especially in terms of a global audience. And so he had to, based on his writing, um, he was very clear. He was very, uh, if, he, if he followed every line, he was extremely articulate. And he would go back and make changes. You'll see at the Library of Congress, his original speeches where he's you know, annotated, where he's changed a word or two or added some additional phrasing. Uh, to provide a little bit more punch or bite to uh, something um, that he said. Can, can I read something? I was speeches? hoping you, you would. hope so. And so. if I could just add, yes. it's enough that he was this brilliant orator, but um, for the most part, he was self-taught. He yes. pretty much taught himself to read and right. write. And that's what I find, I find, that, I find that amazing. I found in reading the narrative and reading, you know, my bondage, my freedom, that the the great um, pain, the great, um, you know, the force that he becomes is is really evident in the books that he, that he's written about himself, his autobiographies. But the idea that he understood that education was the beginning of this freedom, that to learn to read opened up all the possibilities. And believe me, I, when when you when you reflect on that, you you really are grateful for having the opportunity to be able to have a book and open it. And and where I work in the Rose Library, of course, we have thousands of books, tens of thousands. And to be able to sit back and reflect on the fact that how very important this particular part of an individual's life is and can be, that's that's tremendous. And to have this this wonderful. Um, you know, record of the life of this individual and the impact that he was able to have on, on, on all of us, even to, to this day, is so very important. So what I'm going to read just a, a brief excerpt from his 1852 speech. On July 4th, 1852, Douglas gave um, a speech at Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York, uh, his famous Fourth of July speech. And so I'll read the first paragraph from that. But I, this is probably, for me, one of the most important speeches that I've I've been able to read. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals in him, more than all days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impotence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace the nations of savages. This is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shockingly and bloody than are the peoples of this United States at this very hour. So this was upon his return to, or after... Seven years after. After he had visited Ireland and amassed those impressions of the type of suffering and oppression yes. that the Irish people were And he's, he's unwilling to, you know, kind of take, he's, he calls it out. 
is, is what I'm understanding more than anything else. He says what needs to be said, and he provides examples so that you have to think about what is being said in these speeches. The late Professor Pella McDaniels, a dynamic scholar and curator of the African-American collections at Emory's Rose Library, with former Irish Consul General Shane Stevens, recorded in 2018. You can hear that full interview on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, we'll continue our celebration of all things Irish with a listen back to some Irish poetry readings. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Irish poetry readings have become a St. Patrick's Day tradition on City Lights, and today we'll listen back to some favorites. First up is Kathleen McManus. The Atlanta actor, director, and educator is a founding member of Arish. Atlanta's stage for Celtic culture. In 2018, she paired poems from William Butler Yeats and even Boland. But first, she explained her choice of poems. I put out the word on Facebook to have friends send me their favorite Irish poems. And wouldn't you know, William Butler Yeats would bubble up to the top um, so I have some poems by Yeats that I have paired with some poems by uh, the poet Yvonne Boland, um, and I call it a conversation between the two across the generation gap and across the gender gap. Ah, so we have so I've, Women's I've, History Month in addition to St. Absolutely. Patty's. And, and, um... Much has been written about Yeats. He's sort of the granddaddy of not only modern Irish poetry, one of, one of many, but also a, a, you know, a co-founder of the Abbey Theatre and responsible for the rise of Irish drama as a force to be reckoned with. And he was, you know, he, he lived from 1865 to 1939. And Yvonne is born in 1942 in Dublin. And she said, growing up in Dublin, because um, she would have come of age in the 1960s, that to put the words woman and poet together was just odd, foreign. And so she always felt a bit like an outsider um, in her own hometown. And she now teaches at Stanford and says she goes home about once every 10 weeks or so. She goes home frequently, but she is now an immigrant. You know, she's yet another person who crossed the pond to America and casts her eye back over. So I liked this idea of pairing Yeats with Boland. Lady or gentleman first? I think gentleman first, age before beauty. And, <laughs> and uh, because I think these poems I've chosen, she is responding to something in a poem. And that's a, an old poetic tradition, two poets talking to each other um, over, the, over the many years. I'd like to begin with two pairs that are based on Yeats's meditations in time of civil war. He had gone to Galway to try to get away. I mean, he, here he is, a man in his 50s, and he's witnessing some of his friends being executed for their part in the Easter uprising and then the war that follows. And so this first one is called The Stairs Nest by My Window and it's going to be partnered with Yeats uh, in Civil War. The bees build in the crevices of loosening masonry, and there the mother birds bring grubs and flies. My wall is loosening. Honeybees, come build in the empty house of the stair. We are closed in, and the key is turned on our uncertainty. Somewhere a man is killed or a house burned, yet no clear fact to be discerned. Come build in the empty house of the stair. 
a barricade of stone or of wood, some fourteen days of civil war. Last night they trundled down the road, that dead young soldier in his blood, come build in the empty house of the stair. We had fed the heart on fantasies, the heart's grown brutal from the fair. More substance in our enmities than in our love. Oh, honeybees, come build in the empty house of the stair. And stair is a, a, a sort of a diminutive word for starling, their word for, uh, in the west of Ireland, a little nickname for starling. And Yeats and Civil War begins with a, a little clip from his um, speech in 1923 when he won the Nobel Prize. And so this is actually the beginning of her poem, Boland's poem, that starts with a little touch of Yeats. Presently a strange thing happened. I began to smell honey in places where honey could not be. In middle age you exchanged the sandals of a pilgrim for a Norman keep in Galway. Civil war started, vandals sacked your country, made off with your sleep. Somehow, you arranged your escape aboard a spirit ship, which every day hoisted sail out of fire and rape. And on that ship, your mind was stowaway. The sun mounted on a wasted place, but the wind at every door in turn blew the smell of honey in your face, where there was none. Whatever we may learn, you are its sum. Struggling to survive, a fantasy of honey, your reprieve. It's gorgeous. And I'm wondering, I think she may have written this um, at the beginning of the Troubles. Uh, so, you know, it would not have been unusual for Yeats to be on her mind that way. For those who may not know the term, would you explain? Absolutely. Um, the Troubles uh, take place for over a period, off and on, over a period of 30 years from the late 60s to the late 90s, and um, mostly instigated by uh, the IRA um, against the British and um, a struggle going on in Northern Ireland for those who desire the unification of the whole Ireland, uh, of the whole island, that the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland should be together. Um, and uh, because Northern Ireland, of course, is a part of Great Britain. And Protestant. And mostly Protestant, not entirely, but mostly Protestant. And I think for the last hundred years, there's been this real uh, heartache about its being separated from the rest of Ireland. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, talking with Kathleen McManus of Arish Theatre, Atlanta's stage for Celtic culture. She's here for St. Patrick's Day, pairing and reading poems by William Butler Yeats and Yvonne Boland. A friend sent a poem called Crazy Jane Talks with the Bishop, and this is a poem sent from a poet in New Orleans, uh, a gentleman by the name of David Rowe. He says, Kathleen, this is a poem that makes me proud to be Irish. So here is Crazy Jane talks with the bishop, and I'm pairing that with making up. Crazy Jane. I met the bishop on the road, and much said he and I, those breasts are flat and fallen now, those veins must soon be dry. Live in a heavenly mansion, not in some foul sty. Fair and foul are near of kin, and fair needs foul, I cried. My friends are gone, but that's a truth, nor grave nor bed denied, learned in bodily lowliness and in the heart's pride. A woman can be proud and stiff when on love intent, but love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement. For nothing can be soul or whole, that has not been rent. And this is Making Up. I love it. By Ivan Boland. My naked face, I wake to it. How it's dulced and shrouded. It's a cloud. A dull pre-dawn. But I'll soon see to that. 
I push the blusher up, I rattle and I prink, pinking bone till my eyes are a rouge-washed flush on water. Now the base, pales and wastes, light thins from ear to chin, whitening in the ocean shine, mirror set of my eyes that I fledge in old darks. I grease and full my mouth. It won't stay shut. I look in the glass. My face is made, it says. Take nothing, nothing at its face value. Legendary seas, nakedness that up and stuck lassitude of thigh and buttock that they prayed to. It's a trick. Myths are made by men. The truth of this wave-raiding, sea-heaving, made-up tale of a face from the source of the morning is my own. Mine are the rouge pots, the hot pinks, the fledged and edgy mix of light and water, out of which I dawn. <laughs> oh, that is marvelous. Well, Kathleen, it's just a joy to visit with you each St. Patrick's Day. This is far less elegant, but I know this Irish toast I love, if I may leave you with it. Absolutely. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Oh, that's delightful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Kathleen McManus actor, director, and founding member of Arich Theatre, pairing poems by William Butler Yeats and even Boland. Next up, from our conversation last year, poet Elaine Cosgrove from the town of Sligo and author of Transmissions. Cosgrove was joined by another former Irish consul general, Chiaro Flynn. The two read from a variety of works, beginning with Cosgrove's Endless. Elaine, you will read one of your own poems for us today called Endless. When did you compose this? Um, I believe the first draft of it would have been in my early 20s. It went through a lot of redrafts throughout the years, a lot. <laughs> so this is the final version that ended up in my book that came out in 2017 called Transmissions, which is funny since living over here now. <laughs> I see transmissions everywhere, but not in the same way I had thought about it when I named the book. But there you go. <laughs> you have an esteemed publisher as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm, I'm published with uh, Daedalus Press. They're a publisher based out of Ireland. They have a very strong connection to the United States. Many of their roster, if you like, would have visited the U.S. quite frequently over the years. Would you read Endless for us, please, and then tell us more about it? Oh, it be my pleasure. Endless. We become adults on roads, on lines, on grids, on greens, on gray spaces you cannot zoom in. We become older, the city as seer, Decibels to scale from stepping dawn to engine rattling dusk to clinking night and walk back light. Chiroscuro lives in metered hope. We become in spite of what happens and we are here, still here, becoming with care and listening ears. We become no matter the distortion that hopes to confuse our hearts and break them. We become electric on and off beings, flowing again and again, endless in this sudden, glittering world of interruptions. Has the poem taken on new meaning for you after living in Atlanta for a few years? It, you know, it has. It's funny how poetry does that. Uh, and it's one of the things I love best about poetry is how, you know, when you reread a poem over time, how it can change meaning. And I think when you're the writer of the poem itself, it can surprise you as well. Since moving here, you know, I am living in a new city. I lived in Galway City for 14 years before I moved here. And I'm from Sligo. This idea of getting to know a city and the city being a seer or a holder of a future for you has really been, albeit restricted movements the last year, but um, I really felt that when I moved over that uh, it was an opportunity to get to know a city and its layout and people and learn more about its history and 
I guess that embrace that you find and how you just keep going. You'll have light days and dark days and days you're very uncertain of yourself and other days you're like, okay, I got this. (laughs) Yeah, it really has brought new meaning to me since moving here. You chose another poem by an earlier poet of Ireland, Eva Gore Booth, Breathney. She's from the same region as you, I believe. Would you read that? So this is a poem by Eva Gorbuth, and it's called The Little Waves of Breffney. Breffney is a very old name for the northwest of Ireland, where I am from. The grand road from the mountain goes shining to the sea, and there is traffic in it, and many a horse and cart. The little roads of Cluna are clear, dearer, far to me, and the little roads of Cluna go rambling through my heart. A great storm from the ocean goes shouting o'er the hill, and there is glory in it and terror on the wind. But the haunted air of twilight is very strange and still, and the little winds of twilight are dearer to my mind. The great waves of the Atlantic sweep, storming on their way, shining green and silver with a hidden hern shoal. But the little waves of Breffney have drenched my heart in spray, and the little waves of Breffney go stumbling through my soul. Beautiful. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And related to Endless. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a feeling of a harsh, a heart feeling in it of a longing or a want or this feeling of um, the ocean you feel as well, the sea feels. I feel like the Atlantic and the West Coast of Ireland is, is such a, a unique place and how it can really be a reflection for so many states of your mind and how you relate to the place. There's definitely a relation between two of them. <laughs> Kara, you have chosen a poem for Ireland by Avon Boland. Yes. I was taken by this phrase, in the worst hour of the worst season of the worst year. And it wasn't talking about the coronavirus pandemic. Yes, Exactly. It's talking about the famine period in Ireland, specifically the worst year of the famine in 1847. And I chose this poem because I think it it reflects on that period in history, which went on to shape so much of the emigrant experience from Ireland to the US. I think that resonates very strongly today. And also the the poet, Ivan Boland, she unfortunately passed away a few years ago. She was a much-loved poet in Ireland, a, a trailblazer, a feminist. She wrote about the emigrant experience, living abroad. So I felt that that fitted. And I think it actually fits very nicely with the themes that Elaine has brought up there as well. Would you read it, please? Of course. Quarantine by Ivan Boland. In the worst hour of the worst season of the worst year of a whole people, A man set out from the workhouse with his wife. He was walking, they were both walking, north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. He lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like that west and west and north, until at nightfall under freezing stars they arrived. In the morning they were both found dead, of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history but her feet were held against his breastbone. The last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. Let no love poem ever come to this threshold. There is no place here for the inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body. There is only time for this merciless inventory. Their death together in the winter of 1847, also what they suffered, how they lived, and what there is between a man and woman, and in which darkness it can best be proved. That is a stunning poem, just stunning. It's a love story, it's a metaphor, it's a history lesson. It's a beautiful poem. It's actually hard to read. very, I find it very emotional. It's a nice reflection, as you said, of, of history, you know, what has shaped Irish identity, uh, the experience of many as emigrants, and, and that's been reflected through the lives of many people here in the US, I think. Why do storytelling and poetry reflect Irish culture so beautifully? Well, I think we're quite a verbose 
as well. So it reflects it quite well. And we love to tell a good story. And I think there's a very strong oral tradition in Ireland long before printing press, printed matter. There's a strong tradition of gathering, I guess, of coming together of people that goes down, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. A lot of families would have had their local poet, if you like, their, their storyteller, someone to compose and to share the stories and sometimes through poetry and through bar, the bard tradition. Mm-hmm. I guess we just never lost that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree. And I think, as Elaine said, it's about that feeling of connection. I, I think Irish people love to feel connected to each other and connected to to others as well and culture and poetry in particular is such a great way to do that so I think it's something that Irish people and and people everywhere have just connect with. Poet Elaine Cosgrove and former Consul General Chiara O'Flynn. You can hear that entire conversation on our website wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the history behind Atlanta's culture channel, Butter ATL. We'll talk with founder and executive director Brandon Butler and editor-in-chief Mike Jordan, plus jazz musician and trumpeter Jordan Rich. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.